0: section seven of through east anglia in a motor car by j e vincent this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter four of through east anglia in a motor car by j e vincent spring through the heart of east anglia part two during tea and the consumption of the strange tea cakes which may after all have been slices of the traditional norfolk dumpling more or less toasted rose a suggestion that we might turn southward for three or four miles cross the waveney enter suffolk again and take a motorist's view of euston park it would be the same euston park planted with many of the same trees grown bigger which surrounded the house when Lord Ossory heard the thunder of guns from the east and rode off, as has been recounted before this, to be a spectator of the great sea fight in Sol Bay. It would be the same house too, for it was acquired by the first Duke of Grafton with the property by marrying Lord Arlington's daughter in the days of Charles the Second and the dukes of grafton from time to time hold it still the decision not to make a detour was reached partly because as we meant to make norwich by way of attleborough and wyndham it would have involved a return by the same road as that taken on the outward journey and partly because the descriptions were unpromising the reference here is distinctly not to the description in murray it is a large good red brick house with stone coins built by lord arlington in the reign of charles ii and without any pretensions to beauty except from its position in a well-timbered and well-watered park that description such as the perversity of human nature, raised a suspicion that the house might, if it were visible from the road, turn out to be a very satisfying structure, conveying that idea of spacious comfort and substance which is completely lacking in many a more imposing mansion. Nor was I moved by the fact that Walpole wrote, the house is large and bad for it might have been possible to disagree with walpole of strawberry hill on a question of taste but walpole went beyond matters of mere opinion it was built by lord arlington and stands as all old houses do for convenience of water and shelter in a hole so it neither sees nor is seen that settled the question euston might or might not be one of the stately homes of england whose owners permit them to be inspected by strangers on stated days this march day might have been such a day but not even the prospect of seeing euston's watered vale and sloping plains or some fairly interesting portraits Orverio's frescoes would have induced me to avail myself of the privilege if indeed it had existed i know what the legitimate inmates of a great house feel on those occasions besides motorists are unpopular in ducal parks and with good reason it is absolutely true that a duke riding a bicycle in his own park has been abused coarsely violently and recently by a motorist who was enjoying that park by the duke's grace that park is now closed to motorists and no wonder and the case is not exceptional in character so we glided onward gliding is the true word for the onward movement of a good car over the open ground of croxton heath first then past sundry villages not lying close up to the high road between the houses of attleborough and noticed without halting attleborough's fine church after this for quite a long while there were no more villages, and then in front of us and dominating the view rose a huge church having two towers one at the west end it stirred memory of pleasant browsings in norfolk and norwich notes and queries this could be and in fact was none other than Wyndham, pronounced wyndham where the benedictine monks and the parishioners quarrelled over the parish church which had been appropriated to the abbey so bitterly did they quarrel that the east end transepts and part of the nave were walled off for the monks they certainly took the lion's share in fourteen ten the parishioners being relegated to a portion of the nave and there at the west end they built them a tower and hung bells in fourteen seventy six a mighty religious house was this of wyndham entitled to all wrecks between eccles Haysborough and tunstead and to a tribute of two thousand eels every year from ealingley this tribute we may be sure was paid in lent for it is pretty clear from the paston letters that while herrings were the stock food of the days of fasting eels were the luxury that made them tolerable mistress agnes paston writes to her husband in london that she has secured the herrings from yarmouth no doubt as she lived hard by at Caster by yarmouth but that the eels are delayed which appears to be accounted very sad just because this was a mighty religious house at wyndham it is not surprising to find that kett of the famous rebellion was a wyndham man here unfortunately it is necessary to be at partial variance with mr walter rye he writes lingard as of late professor rogers has said that Ket's rebellion had a religious origin the former so writing from religious bias the latter from ignorance that is a rather brisk way of putting things for although lingard as a roman catholic was a little apt to think too ill of the effects of henry the Eighth's policy towards the religious houses professor rogers deserved to be spoken of with more respect enclosures were of course the main cause for Ket's rebellion in fifteen forty nine and Ket had a private grudge to avenge against one sergeant flowerdew at the outset but as a wiltshire labourer once said to me where there's stones there's cairn so where there have been great religious houses in england the rebellious spirit manifests itself in the pages of history before and after those houses came to an end at abingdon and at berry st edmunds i quote the two places of which the story happens to be fresh in my memory conflicts were incessant and there is no reason to doubt that the state of things was the same at wyndham the religious houses had become with exceptions of course corrupt within and extortionate without the gates they were oppressors of the poor whose best friends they had once been there was no limit to the variety of the tolls they demanded they were by far the largest landowners in the country all this had ceased but a very few years before Ket's rebellion but the spirit which it had created the very men in whom that spirit had been raised by extortion and injustice were very much alive if Ket's rebellion had not such a directly religious origin as lingard supposed it is more than likely that it was indirectly due to the spirit of unrest and discontent which always arose in the vicinities of religious houses indeed the very success of henry the stern treatment of the monasteries is proof positive that he was supported by popular opinion as for the enclosures some may have been made by the new lords of manners others and probably the vast majority had been made by the grasping religious moreover the petition sent up to the king when the rebellion was at its height contained express allusions to religious grievances it asked that parsons shall be resident and all having a benefice worth more than ten pounds a year shall by himself or deputy teach the poor parish children the catechism and the primer not a very outrageous demand surely and if we scan the material grievances complained against establishment of numerous dovecots and claims to exclusive rights of fishing for example we see that they are essentially the grievances which the religious houses had originated how Ket and his men marched in due course to mousehold heath on the outskirts of norwich the grievous fighting which followed in and about norwich how they killed lord sheffield by the palace gates at a spot marked to this day by a stone with an s on it how warwick after many reverses, finally defeated Ket, who was hanged, drawn, and quartered, shall not be told at length in this volume. These things are an essential part of the history of England. They are far and away the most exciting events in the history of Norwich, and, since they cannot be dealt with fully here, they are best passed over with this slight mention. At wyndham is or was an old house having a very curious inscription nec mihi glis servus nec hospes hirudo which is not quite free from difficulty even as it stands for a verb is left to be understood and it may be sit or est in the one case the guest hopes in the other the house boasts the servant to be no dormouse and the host no leech things were worse when somebody read hirudo as hirundo though one might make attractive translations of that too but we cannot linger over that when we are close to the scene of a tragedy far more recent and therefore a good deal more affecting than that of Ket's rebellion. Stanfield Hall is close to Wyndham. It is the reputed birthplace of Amy Robsart, who may or may not have been murdered at Cumnor. Lady Warwick says she was not, and Stanfield Hall was certainly the scene of a series of remarkably cold-blooded murders in times which may still be counted recent prefacing a frank confession that my personal interest in murders is small which seems to be a misfortune judging by the enraptured attention they attract from many intelligent and cultivated persons i endeavour to give some account of these murders partly because i desire to please partly because a very old friend now dead devoted a vast amount of attention to them his meticulous care in studying the locus in quo may serve to compensate for my lukewarmness as a student of homicide nay more his interest in the subject seems to have been infectious for having read his monograph of some five-and-twenty octavo pages on the subject since the foregoing sentence was penned i am now distinctly conscious of being keen on the subject and of finding interest in it truth to tell it was not the first time of reading the late sir Llewellyn turner of carnarvon was one of those rare men who inhabiting remote corners of the provinces escape provincialism and retain intelligent appreciation of public affairs and a sympathetic interest in all sorts of events in the year nineteen o two having committed to paper his memories and opinions upon a large number of subjects and being all but eighty years old he entrusted me with the task of preparing his manuscripts for the printers and he had the satisfaction of seeing himself in print to the extent of some five hundred pages with illustrations before he died among the miscellaneous chapters of the book is one entitled stanfield hall and its terrible tragedies it is of course far too long for quotation but it is also a treasure-house of nice points some of them perhaps new even to precise students of the history of crime in the year eighteen something i accepted an invitation from my valued friend connection and old schoolfellow colonel boyley to pay him a visit in this interesting old moated house the scene of fearful murders and bloodshed, that is, the murders of Mr. Isaac Jermy, the recorder of Norwich, of his son, Mr. Isaac Jermy Jermy, and the shooting of Mrs. Jermy Jermy, the son's wife, and her maid, by probably one of the greatest scoundrels that ever disgraced humanity, James Bloomfield Rush. The quotation will serve to show that my old friend's literary method is too leisurely and minute to justify the repetition of the story in his own words truth to tell he rambled somewhat and was not unduly particular about the sequence of events still it may be possible after study of his monograph to produce a narrative of this crime having something more of freshness than would follow from reference to the textbooks of crime for these murders it must be remembered were on a colossal scale and the case although simple enough in its legal aspect has a place among the celebrated crimes by virtue of its wholesale character its beginnings in long-planned roguery and its culmination in thorough-paced brutality. The foundations of the programme of crime, which was finished on the twenty-eighth of November, eighteen forty-eight, were laid many years before, and it is a curious study in the wickedness of which human nature is capable to trace the evolution of the scheme. In the second half of the eighteenth century, the then head of the Jermy family held stanfield hall and its estate as probably his predecessors of the same name had held it for centuries germian is one of the norfolk names of an early date for which mr walter rye claims a danish origin and he was probably a Jermy, or letters to that effect who in tudor times built stanfield hall and motored it round and about at any rate a germy held it when our story opens a poor relation of the name sold his reversionary interest in the estate to a mr preston and mr preston came into the estate in the shoes of the poor relation and was able to settle down in stanfield hall outside the lodge gates lay the home farm having james rush for its tenant a plausible fellow it would seem but a whole-souled rascal at heart ascertaining that his landlord was going to london by coach on a given day rush engaged the three remaining inside places for himself and so agreeable did he contrive to make himself to the old man on the journey that he returned to stanfield not merely as tenant of the home farm but also as accredited agent of the estate as such he had access to mr preston's title deeds which he stole before mr preston died so mr preston the elder slept with his father's if he had any and mr isaac preston his son reigned in his stead rush remaining agent and tenant of home farm and as mr isaac preston was recorder of norwich the beautiful old house within easy access of the great town suited his needs admirably he settled down in it at once and later as we shall see he began to think of adding to the estate when exactly the recorder discovered that the title deeds were missing my authority does not relate but probabilities seem to point to an early discovery coupled with a suspicion which was perhaps difficult to bring home that rush had annexed them that would give rush a hold over the recorder and it is only on that hypothesis that the recorder's subsequent conduct in relation to rush can be explained at one and the same time we find rush practically bankrupt and the heirs of the original germies egged on by rush into an attempt to recover the family estate in the court of chancery the recorder really was in rather a tight place for the simple reason that he could not have proved his title without the deeds and that he could not bring the theft of them home to rush still he was recorder of norwich and a person of consideration and when the claimants weary of the delays of the court of chancery organized a small army of emergency men in norwich took possession of the house by force and held it barricading the windows and the bridge over the moat the dragoons then quartered in norwich soon restored the peace in so acting the claimants were but following an ancient precedent of the county of norfolk for early in the fifteenth century the duke of norfolk besieged caster castle built by that renowned knight and valiant soldier sir john Falstolf then deceased, and occupied on what ground does not appear clearly from the Paston letters by Sir John Paston's family. There were, however, material differences between the two cases, the first of them being that the Duke had apparently at least a show of title to Caister Castle through the courts, while in this case the claimants were anticipating the judgment of the court and the next being a trifle of four centuries for it was so recently as april eighteen thirty nine that john larner daniel wingfield and eighty others the emergency army in fact were indicted for riot at stanfield hall still it is not easy to understand how after so lawless a proceeding at so recent a date the presiding judge could have passed, as he did, a series of sentences of from three months to one week's imprisonment. True it is that the recorder recommended them to mercy as ignorant persons, actuated by a mistaken notion of property, but the sentences are still hard to understand, so, for that matter, are many sentences in these days. At about the same time, the recorder brought a suit, Preston versus Rush, against Rush for breach of covenant, no doubt in relation to the home farm, and it was clearly after this that the recorder went through the process, expensive in those days, of taking the name of Jeremy, because he found that it was necessary, by the old settlements of the estate, that the owner should bear the name of Jermy. A year earlier than the riot, so far as I can make out the dates, some land, called the Potash Farm, came into the market, and it is clear from the recorder's conduct over this matter that he felt himself to be very much at the mercy of Rush he must have known rush to be practically insolvent he knew that the title-deeds were missing and he probably suspected rush yet he sent out rush as his agent to bid for the potash farm which adjoined stanfield park rush came back from the auction having bought the farm not for his master but for himself at a price greater than that to which his master had limited him and the recorder actually lent him five thousand pounds repayable in ten years and secured by mortgage wherewith to complete the purchase of course the price may have been considerably more than five thousand pounds and the bargain may have seemed on the face of it as promising as that which the original preston made with the poor relation but it all sounds as if rush had a stronger hold of the recorder than even the possession of the title deeds would give him or as if the recorder were a strangely nervous and foolish man eight years passed away one knows not how so far as these persons are concerned and the end of them found Rush a widower with several children occupying the Potash farm and holding another at Felmingham, fourteen miles off, also from the recorder, now Mr. Isaac Jermy, by due form of law, at the end of those eight years. Rush advertised for a governess, engaged one Emily Sanford, who replied to the advertisement and betrayed her but she continued to live with him then came november of eighteen forty eight on the last day of which the five thousand pounds was payable and the recorder often entreated would not give rush time it does not appear that the chancery suit had failed utterly and hopelessly but it is clear from the sequel that the original germys had fallen very low in the world and the recorder recognizing that they were no longer dangerous may have found courage if so it cost him his life the day of fate and blood was the twenty eighth of november on the evening of that day mr Jermy, according to his usual custom one no doubt familiar to rush went to the hall door at half-past eight to look at the prospects of the weather and the night was fine for the time of year for five persons servant girls and their sweethearts were as the evidence at the trial showed gossiping by the gate beyond the moat only thirty-five yards from the hall door no sooner did mr jermy come out than rush who was disguised shot him dead with a pistol the muzzle of which must almost have touched his body the fourth fifth and sixth ribs were shattered the entire body of the heart was carried away the loiterers on the bridge ran away in terror mr jermy the younger rushing from the drawing-room to see what was the matter was met and shot dead on the spot by rush in the corridor Mrs. Jeremy, the younger, hurrying into the hall, saw her husband's body, ran to call the butler Watson, and was met by her maid, Eliza Chastney. Rush encountered them both in a passage, shot Mrs. Jeremy in the arm and the maid in the thigh and groin. Mrs. Jeremy's daughter and the cook ran out by the back door and took refuge in the coach-house. The coachman jumped into the moat, swam across, and rode to Wyndham for help. As for the butler, he heard the first shot, went into the passage, saw an armed man with a cloak and mask who motioned him to keep off, and, well, he kept off. Rush was arrested at Potash Farm before three o'clock the next morning. His trial at which emily sanford was a most valuable witness for the crown and a most deadly one to him attracted immense attention sir llewellyn says the excitement throughout the nation exceeded anything of the kind ever known and the times actually sent down a printing press to norwich to report daily the incidents of the magisterial and coroner's inquiries perhaps it need hardly be said that inquiry has shown the statement about the times and the printing press to be entirely without foundation for since the times as a whole has always been printed in london and london has always been its place of publication nothing could have been gained by sending a printing press to norwich it would have been just as wise to send a piano a plough or a pump but it does not follow that sir llewellyn turner is to be distrusted in other matters because he knew nothing of the mechanical technicalities of journalism what happened no doubt was that the times secured and published a very full report and good folks wondering how the miracle was performed hit upon the idea of a special dispatch of a printing press and were satisfied because an explanation which they could not understand had been set up suggestions quite as impossible are made in these days a correspondent who very likely cannot write shorthand is frequently asked whether he hands his shorthand notes directly to the printers or to the telegraphists neither of whom would be able to cope with the notes if he were capable of making them huge crowds attended the funeral of the victims at wyndham immense excitement also was caused by the trial of rush at norwich assizes although the issue cannot have been in doubt for a moment after the evidence of emily sandford the report of the trial is only interesting now as showing by comparison with discoveries made later how little the police had found out and as bearing especially with reference to the violence of rush at the trial upon the kinship of homicidal crime and madness the attraction of the case consisted then and consists now in its sheer brutality and prodigality of bloodshed and in the long series of cunning plots to be outlined shortly by which it was preceded within the space of a very few minutes rush had murdered two persons and had grievously wounded two others he had shown himself to be quite an exceptional paragon of villainy and public curiosity to see so hardened a ruffian was natural nor need it be matter for surprise that the public execution of rush at norwich where the remains of the norman castle on the mound in the heart of the city were then the jail and the place of execution was attended by a vast concourse of people if ever there was a good excuse for gloating over a wretch ignominiously done to death it was present in the case of james rush the wholesale murderer in all these thoughts stirred by the sight of stanfield hall there is it may be little of novelty to students of crimes and criminals even though many of the details may have been forgotten but my old friend's monograph has a peculiar interest and value because although he wrote with the failing memory of one well stricken in years it is possible to follow in it an elaborate development of criminal cunning almost if not quite without parallel in the history of crime also it enables one to see a long string of earlier crimes probably committed by rush which while they could not have been mentioned at his trial would have well qualified him for admission to the role of unmitigated miscreants disgracefully distinguished by pre-eminence in ill doing whom mr thomas seckham and his associates gibbeted in twelve bad men published by fisher unwin in eighteen ninety four his preparations for the crime were of the most elaborate character his plans for taking the most complete advantage of it when it had been committed, and for so perpetrating it that suspicion might fall upon others, were of an absolutely diabolical ingenuity. Let some of the details of those plans be enumerated. He had provided numerous disguises, some of which were not discovered until long after he had been hanged. HE HAD COVERED WITH STRAW, AS IF FOR CATTLE, HIS MOST CONVENIENT PATH TO THE HALL, AND HIS FOOTSTEPS COULD NOT BE TRACED ON THE STRAW. HE HAD MADE EMILY STANFORD DRIVE WITH HIM TOWARDS THE HALL, SO THAT SHE MIGHT BE SEEN WITH HIM BY A turnpike KEEPER AND THE LODGE KEEPER ON THE 10TH OF OCTOBER, 1848, AND THE 21ST OF NOVEMBER, 1848 he had forged documents of both those dates which were afterwards found under the floor of a cupboard in potash farm the first was an agreement between the recorder and himself whereby the recorder gave him three more years for the payment of the five thousand pounds the next was an agreement between the same parties that if brush gave up the missing title deeds the recorder would burn the mortgage deeds of potash farm and give rush a lease of the felmingham estate it was further agreed that rush should do all he could to assist the recorder in retaining possession there was also a forged lease of felmingham to rush to all these emily sanford had signed her name as witness without knowing the contents to the efficacy of them all the death of the recorder was indispensable for of course he would have denounced the forgery at once and the death of mr jermy the younger who knew his father's affairs intimately would be a decided help but rush although he had no scruples at all about taking life as he proved very conclusively had a very considerable regard for the skin of his own neck the new jermys were to be ruthlessly exterminated the old germies or some of them he did not care how many were to be hanged and rush was to become a rich man he inveigled some of the old jermys into the vicinity of stanfield hall on the day of the murders he left on the floor of one of the passages in the hall a warning in printed letters. There are seven of us here, three of us outside, and four inside the hall, all armed as you see us here. If any of you servants offer to leave the premises or to follow, you will be shot dead. Therefore, all of you keep in the servants' hall, and you nor anybody else will take any arm for we are only come to take possession of the stanfield hall property thomas Jermy, the owner the very illiteracy of this document may have been designed for the original germys having come down in the world had as Rushwell well knew come down with a run to the very bottom indeed one of them probably this thomas swore at the trial that he did not know how to write if he had been in the dock instead of in the witness-box as rush had planned his mouth would have been closed and with the recorder and his son dead with the memory of the riot of eighteen thirty nine fresh in the minds of the jury things might have been very awkward for thomas and others of the true germy family they had been seen about the hall on the day of the murders the murderer had disguised himself most likely so that he might be taken for one of the true germies he had not been careful to go unseen though he had avoided observation in leaving potash farm the rude warning printed on the cover of a book was just the kind of missive an illiterate person might be expected to produce, and Thomas Jermy would have stood in quite measurable peril of that last interview with Calcraft, which Rush went through with callous effrontery. Of the penmanship of the other forged documents, it is not possible to speak, but their phraseology is sufficiently clear, and they might have passed muster. The question whether they would have done so or not has, however, no bearing on the character of Rush. He had laid his plan with devilish ingenuity. He had made all things ready in such fashion as to satisfy his knowledge of what legal documents ought to be. It was a plan as complete, cunning, and merciless as it was possible for man to devise sir llewellyn turner had little doubt that if rush had escaped scot-free and the forged documents or either of them had been effectual rush would have murdered emily sanford also and in the circumstances the view can hardly be stigmatized as uncharitable she would have had rush at her mercy she would have been in his way and Rush had no scruples in dealing with those who were in his way. It was believed locally that he got rid of his mother and forged a codicil in his own favour to her will. That forgery at any rate succeeded, for he obtained £1,500 by it, and the circumstantial story of his stepfather's death by which the money came to the mother raises a strong suspicion that rush murdered his stepfather also it shall be told in sir llewellyn turner's words his stepfather was shot in eighteen forty four he had gone to sleep after dinner which i believe was his custom and from that sleep he was not allowed to wake his mother was ill upstairs, and Rush's account was that he, Rush, had gone upstairs leaving his gun on a table, that, hearing a shot, he went downstairs and found the gun and his stepfather on the floor, the gun having exploded and killed the latter. Rush himself gave the intelligence to the coroner, and he was the only witness his story was believed and a verdict of accidental death was returned but the subsequent career of rush leaves little doubt that the guilt of this murder also lay upon so much of conscience as he possessed stanfield hall then a very beautiful building still although full of tragic memories may justly claim to have been the scene of crimes as brutal planned by a brain as devilish and ruthless as ever were committed in england or found in man from wyndham we swung on to norwich easily and without difficulty or incident of any kind and at half-past six or thereabouts passed under an archway into the court of the maid's head and the maid's head is an absolute reason for ending one chapter and beginning another end of chapter four part two